You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President at CSIS and Director of the Global Health Policy Center. In mid-February, I attended the Munich Security Conference, at which I organized a town hall focused on COVID-19. I was able to connect with some of the foremost leaders of global agencies, donor organizations, foundations, and others to discuss their organization's efforts on pandemic prevention and what needs to be done. In this episode, you will hear from Mike Ryan, Executive Director of the World Health Organization's Health Emergencies Program. We're here in Munich on Saturday, February 15th at the Munich Security Conference, and we're joined by Mike Ryan, the Executive Director of the World Health Organization's Emergency Programs. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your brief and intensive visit here to the Munich Security Conference. No worries, Steve. It's always good to talk to you. And thank you for joining us at what was, I thought, a very rich and enlightening town hall that we held earlier this morning at the Munich Security Conference. Before we dive in on the work that you've been leading in the last few weeks, a very intensive work at leading the WHO response to the coronavirus outbreak in China and beyond, why come to the Munich Security Conference, in your view? What's the value of carrying the message of the work that you do and that Dr. Tedros and everybody else at WHO does in these situations. We just watched Dr. Tedros deliver his speech calling for solidarity, opposition to stigma, consolidation of support internationally around both the coronavirus as well as the Ebola outbreak in DRC. Tell us, why here? Why come here? Well, as we, we both heard, listening to uh, Ted Russ's speech, the three scenarios that he outlines, uh, certainly in the area of epidemics, are hugely pertinent. Uh, health and security, security are now inextricably linked. The uh, operating and delivering not only epidemic response, but humanitarian interventions as well, in the context of conflict, is now a norm. It's our team's... Today are fighting cholera in Yemen, they're fighting Ebola in Congo. We need to build a stronger understanding, cooperation, operational frameworks that work in the context of conflict. So being able to develop the kind of civil military cooperation that allows epidemic response to be properly managed in those uh, settings, it's not just an option, it's an absolute um, requirement that we do that. We've had, uh, with other international partners, literally thousands of frontline workers in in North Kivu and Ituri, in the heart of the most dangerous area in Congo, maintaining staff and a response in that environment over a year and a half is a major challenge. And we've had huge setbacks in dealing with the virus, not because of the virus itself and its natural But because of the insecurity. Because of the insecurity. So this is intertwined, and we have to find solutions. So in coming here, it's an acknowledgement of the way in which health security figures in a broader geopolitical discussion, and hence you're here. And what's the ask, do you think, to the audience that's here at the Munich Security Conference? What is it that you want to leave behind in the minds of those assembled here who are really security officials and foreign policy officials? Well, I think, Steve, you've been championing this for years here, and we thank you for that. I think it's putting health and health events and epidemics right at the center of security analysis, 
of understanding what are the political, social, and security dimensions of epidemics. Mm -hmm. I spoke about Congo, where the control of the epidemic has an impediment called security. But we also have the fact that these events themselves can generate crises of their own Correct. beyond the health system within society. That's another area, the, the, the emerging pandemic. And, you know, if you have a very high impact epidemic affecting many countries at one time, supply chains, food supplies, health systems coming under attack, stigma, racism. I mean, all of these issues have been raised in, in the last uh, six weeks. They all have potential security implications for society. Uh, and we need to talk about that because it's not within the health system that those solutions lie. Thank and you. even if we look at uh, epidemic response, well, we're responding to cholera, but the solution to cholera is clean water. That's not the health system. The solution to uh, dengue and yellow fever is vector control. So everything from population mobility to design of cities to provision of clean water and sanitation, uh, we need to get to grips with the multi-sectoral nature of epidemics. Epidemics are the result of a deeply complicated interaction between human beings and their environment. And we are changing that relationship. Uh, it's us that's changing. The viruses aren't changing. <laughs> We're driving the change. Right. We're pressuring ecosystems. Uh, we are driving three very important dynamics. We're pressuring the animal-human interface, and therefore we're driving emergence. We're driving the breaches in the species barrier. Then we're setting ourselves up because we're allowing those diseases to amplify in weak health systems, in poorly provisioned uh, hospitals, in refugee camps, in uh, urban slums. Uh, and then when the disease does amplify in those settings, we've created a wonderful way of moving those diseases around the world. It's called our interconnected uh, global transport system. So we're creating a, a series of converging and linked risks. And you have to accept that. And if we accept the benefits of globalization, and on the face of it, if we say it's bringing certain things, it's bringing economic growth, it's bringing democratization, you can argue that. But it's also bringing risks. And we need to manage those risks. And we're not investing in that. And that is what Tedros has been saying. We're not investing in identifying and managing and reducing the risks associated with epidemics globally. And uh, we need to do that. And there is a cost. Uh, and we're not prepared yet to pay that cost. And I think people in the security community understand that. They understand the idea of managing a strategic risk. We see epidemics as a humanitarian risk, as a health risk. We need to have a dialogue with the security community that puts epidemics squarely in the center of considering long-term strategic risks to civilization, to society, to economies. So we can get the necessary investment in preparedness. And have that be a continuous and sustained effort. I mean, Indeed. obviously what we see is this chronic cycle of moving from crisis into complacency and neglect. And that's another indication that the security world hasn't fully embraced this. So the campaign that you're embarked on is, is well, an essential should, one at cracking the code on that cycle. You're one of the uh, prime instigators as well, my friends. <laughs> so. Well, thank you. Talk about the coronavirus outbreak in China and beyond and, and the WHO role in this period. We know just this week you convened 400 scientists mm -hmm. in Geneva for an extraordinary gathering for two days to focus upon many of the unknowns, but also the need for product development, for mm -hmm. rapid and accelerated development of vaccines, of antiviral therapies, of diagnostics. We're struggling with this outbreak um, with a lack of vaccine and, 
and antivirals, but also uh, with the need for better tests mm -hmm. for the ability. Talk a little bit about the WHO role here in this last period in rallying the world around these particular problems. Yeah, it is really important. And you've clearly divided along the meeting's attempt to really look at what we don't know about the virus. Yes. We need to get that knowledge yes. quickly because that helps us devise not only uh, pharmaceutical responses like vaccines and drugs, but the non-pharmaceutical interventions. Because yeah. unless you know how the virus is transmitting, unless you know who's giving it to whom, unless you understand the risks, it's very hard to reduce those risks. And that's a, obviously a primary concern. When we move to diagnostics, vaccines and therapies, the researchers, and particularly the researchers in China, were saying, yes, we want diagnostics, but we want them at point of care. We want to be able to diagnose people in the clinics, in the, right. you know, and so it's not just diagnostics, it's where the diagnostics should be. Yeah. And, and developing point of care diagnostics sounds easy, but that's not straightforward. Yes. Um, in the case of therapies, we've got two approaches. One is we have lots of existing therapies, none of which have been proven historically to work for SARS or MERS, uh, but we have anti-HIV therapies. they can be repurposed. Exactly. And we need to know not only how to use them, but when to use them in the course of the disease. What are the dosages that work? There are all kinds of different regimens with protease inhibitors, with uh, interferons and others. So is there a magic cocktail? Is there a magic uh, therapeutic uh, approach? There's also a lot of work going on in some of the traditional Chinese uh, medicines and remedies. I think yesterday we calculated there were about 82 different investigations, clinical trials, observational studies already underway, mm -hmm. looking at therapeutic interventions. We need to pull all that data together really quickly and come up with some quick answers. Now, there's no guarantee that any of those cocktails or remedies will work. So we need that second phase of drug discovery and being able to find new therapies that work. And it is rather unsettling to be frank, that every time we come to these viral outbreaks, we don't have right. effective, broad-spectrum antivirals. And it's like having a defense strategy that, that has no airplanes or right. has no tanks. And you think, aren't we missing something here? You know? So I think that's a big gap. A lot of people also have a false sense of how rapidly a vaccine can be developed. Yeah, and, we, and I think people know from the last pandemic that it's not a straightforward business. And there is, again, we have to be very careful. Because when we look at overall population attack rates for this virus, it's not very high. In that sense, four per 100,000, and okay, there are people sick and there are people dying and we need to do something. Well, we need to be very careful. Richard Cash, a great old mentor of mine at, the, at Harvard once said, Mike, he said, you should refer everything you do in public health to the Department of Unintended Consequences. <laughs> we need to be careful with population-based interventions because then you're giving everyone exposure to something. At the moment, this virus, everyone isn't exposed, but with a vaccine, you'd expose everybody to the vaccine. And you have to be pretty sure that that's a safe thing to do. So we can't rush into uh, finding a vaccine and, and then, you know, closing our eyes and swinging the bat and hope it works. You know, there's a duty of care and there is a scientific process. And we need to be, again, Tedros said it, we need to be sure that evidence and public health guides policy. Uh, we don't get jumped into doing things prematurely. How optimistic are you and what is a realistic timeline in trying to get to a vaccine in this case? You've been talking to all of the different players involved it, in this. I think we're talking at least a year, if not 18 months. And again, we're going, that's to get a vaccine. Yes. What about a vaccine at scale? 
Right. What about a vaccine that's available to the poorest people in the world? Correct. So it's not just about the vaccine. It's about the scale delivery. of production and delivery. Uh, and there's a huge issue of equity here that has to be addressed up front. We cannot embark on a journey that results in a vaccine being available for the wealthy of the world or for the, for the developed world. We have to have a solution that is fair and equitable and allows access. And it's potentially it's going to, if, if this does become a pandemic, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people, right? Mm -hmm. The question you're posing, which is who's going to pay for, how are we going to mobilize the resources mm -hmm. for this response, mm -hmm. uh, is one of those colossal outstanding questions, it seems to me. We've not yet been able to even begin to table that as we, we need to think ahead. And I think there are mechanisms, and you know, I've been speaking with Richard Hatchett at CEPI and with yes. Seth Berkeley at Gavi. We, yes. we were in a different world than we were 20 years ago. Correct. There are global architectures now and global platforms that yeah. allow us to look at these issues yes. and make more strategic yeah. decisions as a global community. Yeah. But in the end, you've got to fuel that with money. And in the end, that's what it comes down to. And sometimes only states can take the kind of risks, the strategic risks of putting a lot of money into something that might not work. Uh, and they really do need a strong public-private partnership with shared risk, shared benefit, uh, and with access and equity at the center of that. Now, that's hard to achieve, but you know we need to get on with that because this outbreak won't be the last potential global epidemic. Uh, there will be many more to come. We seem to be getting them every four or five years now, right. so we better get our act together. So, Mike, that's that's one of the one of those big strategic issues that I don't think most casual observers of what's happening understand, and it's really good for you to point that out. What else do you think a lay person who's simply watching from a distance? What does that person need to grasp that perhaps doesn't come across in just a casual day-to-day -day reading of the newspapers? I think it's about putting things in perspective. I was asked uh, the other day in a, an interview on my own national media, should people be scared of this yes. killer virus? And I said, no, they shouldn't be scared of the killer virus in China, but they might want to be scared of the killer virus that was already in Ireland. And the, the, the interview said, what? And I said, yeah, it's called influenza. And, you know, the fact is in Europe right now and in America and in other places, uh, older right. people are being exposed and, and dying and coverage rates for seasonal influenza vaccine, even amongst health workers, is lower than it should be. And we talk about protecting frontline health workers. So we don't even use the tools we have. Uh, and we're out worrying about the next disease and the tools we don't have. Right. For yellow fever, we have had a perfectly effective vaccine for 70 years. For measles, look at the measles outbreak. Right. Look at the, the horror of watching children on ventilators in Western Samoa. My teams were there. It was just terrible uh, to see every ventilator in the Pacific Island nation been occupied by an infant for an absolutely preventable disease. Right. So having the tools doesn't necessarily mean we use them. So I do think the ordinary person in the street <laughs> It's about getting it in perspective. It's about realizing that there are things you can do yourself to reduce any risk. And where you have a strong health system, you should be able to rely on that system to take you through any illness that you yeah. have, right? Like anything. There is no zero risk. Every day of our lives, we take risks. We get on airplanes. We cross the road when the light is red because we're rushing to get to work or get home to get our kids, right? We're constantly petrified when we hand our kids over to carers. Are they going to be okay? We spend, almost spend our lives in paralyzed fear of risk. 
and we learn to manage that. So what we need to do is understand, yes, there's a new risk in the world, and it's amongst all of the other risks, and it's a worry and it's a concern, and we don't know where this is going. So our call is a call of alarm to wake up. We need to do something about this. But we don't need to run around and in do the panic. chicken little and say the sky's going to fall in. So what is the right level of alarm? And the most important thing I've learned in a crisis, even with field teams, is you do what you can do. And you give everybody something to do. There's nothing more disruptive and dangerous in a crisis than the people who don't know what to do and they're not doing it. Everyone can take action here. And Everyone is a virus fighter. Yeah. And you fight viruses. Our teams fight viruses by putting on gear and going in and taking care of people or doing epidemiological investigations. But every single citizen can fight viruses. Maintaining social distance, washing your hands. You know, we're all virus fighters. And in this next phase, it's going to be the social science, the social distancing yeah. that we will rely very heavily on as we're moving ahead on these other tracks very aggressively. Mm -hmm. Non-pharmaceutical interventions. And I think most people don't quite understand that, that for the near term, those are the things that we're going to rely most heavily on. Uh, yes, until we know just how fatal this disease is. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of people out there saying, well, it's going to sweep around the world and infect 60% of the population in the first wave. Well, that's one future. There is a whole lot of other futures. And it's, it's clear that while the epidemic has been very intense in, in Wuhan and Hubei, it hasn't demonstrated that same intensity outside Hubei and the other provinces of China. And, you know, we've now got, what, 526 cases outside, outside uh, of China. But of those, only 127 have been exposed outside China. Most of those cases were still exposed in mainly Wuhan. Mm -hmm. So this virus has been outside China for five weeks. And it hasn't become self-sustained. Well, that's what we're looking for, to see, okay, where is it? And I've spoken to colleagues in Singapore, and they're looking. You can imagine in Singapore, they're looking, right? They wouldn't want to miss a thing, and they're retesting everyone coming to the emergency rooms. I think if you have a sniffle, you're getting tested for COVID-19. It doesn't matter. I think they're not finding it out there like we would see in flu. Efficient community transmission with an ever-growing number. Now, it doesn't mean that it won't happen. And you know, Steve, that you can have these phases as the virus establishes itself, and then there's a critical point where it can accelerate. So the question for us is, is the rest of China and the rest of the world in that lag phase, that phony war where the virus is moving and establishing itself, or you know, are we actually getting on top of it? And we don't know. And anyone who says they do know, doesn't know. But the people who are saying that 60% of the world's population are going to be affected, doesn't know either. Uh, well, one great modeling estimation for the Ebola outbreak in Congo was that by last December we would have 56,000 cases of Ebola. And that might have been true without intervention. Most models usually take into account no action. They're basically, what will the natural history of this thing be if we don't do something? But if you do something, it changes. So we have control over our future. We can't name the final number. But we can affect the trajectory of the outbreak. Now, whether this virus can be stopped is, remains to be seen. But there is no question that it's being slowed down. So what do we do with the time? Prepare. Prepare. We can sit around coffee tables and speculate about all the things that are going wrong in China and all the things we haven't done right. <laughs> or we can get on 
and do the things that you just mentioned, the non-pharmaceutical interventions, education, communication, test the therapies we think we have already, get our diagnostics better, get our vaccines in line. It's always a difficult thing because you're going to have to make some big decisions in the next few weeks about investing in vaccines. Uh, and we had the same issues. We're going to have to find the capital. Yeah. And I remember in SARS, and they're not comparable, but I do remember a very similar phase in SARS when people were declaring that the disease was now endemic and it was going to become a pandemic. And we just kept trying to stick to the data of what we saw, person-to-person transmission. And then we had the MI Gardens, and everyone said, you can't be right now. The MI Gardens clearly proves this is an airborne virus. And WHO, you must retract what you're saying. And it's exactly what's happening with the cruise ship in Japan. It's like, people are saying, no, it's clearly it's airborne because look at the ship. I said, you say, yeah, but that's a very particular environment. That's an extreme environment, very people very closely together. Uh, and we've seen norovirus and other things in ships. Put norovirus onto a cruise ship and see what happens. Extrapolating from super spreading events or extrapolating from unique situations, they're really important observations because they tell you something about the virus in a very controlled or uh, observable environment. But they don't necessarily represent the central process of disease transmission. Uh, so outliers in any scientific endeavor need to be taken very seriously but they also can't become the narrative. You know, we had the 24 days incubation period announced last week, and everyone said, now we need to extend the period of observation to 24 days. The 24 days is a very important observation in a few patients, but it could also mean, and we've seen it in Ebola, double exposure. Mm-hmm. We use exposure as a proxy for infection. So I ask you, when were you last in contact with someone with this disease, and you say, Oh, three weeks ago, I met a man who had a cough and then someone writes it down. And you don't report the fact that uh, you were treated by a nurse in a clinic a week ago and had an injection and, and, and what, because you don't associate that as a risky exposure. So I think outliers are both extremely helpful, but very potentially misleading at times. And trying to steer that line between looking at all the data, taking it all seriously, and then synthesizing that into the narrative of, okay, what does all of this mean? It's really easy to be deflected and moved about by individual observations. And we, as an organization with scientific partners, it's probably one of the biggest challenges. Because every day there's a new story. Every day there's a new narrative, there's a new event that kind of flop over onto the next big thing. We had the big controversy the other day about all of these new 14,000 cases reported by China. (laughs) And uh, people were reporting a seven-fold rise in the number of cases in one day. And again, we're saying, okay, let's try to explain this. Let's right. try and changing the diagnostic. Yeah. But you know, in, in media terms, when, when you're explaining, you're losing. Right. <laughs> so that's been a, a challenge. Let me ask months. you two things. One is you talked today in our session around infodemics, around dealing with the misinformation and the weaponized social media, which plays such a huge role in almost every outbreak situation today. And WHO has taken this on as a priority in engagement. Uh, tell us a little bit about that endeavor and where are you seeing progress in your dialogue with social media, in your dialogue with others, in your appeal. We heard this as a very strong message in Dr. Tedros' address mm-hmm. to the Munich Security Conference just a few minutes ago. Well, I think it's not just the responsibility of WHO, it's it's the responsibility of everyone. We've seen that with measles, with other health interventions. I mean, I think there's a number of things that underpin this situation we're in. 
I think over the years there's been a almost a systematic breach of trust between citizens and governments when it comes to information. Mm. Are they telling us the truth? You know, uh, and you see that with the anti-vaccination movement. And, you know, there was a time in society when the doctor spoke or the priest spoke or the teacher spoke. <laughs> People did it because they know. And that was good, but it was also bad because it meant that only a few people in society had control over knowledge and information. So I love social media age. I love the democratization of information. I love the fact that anyone can access anything. Knowledge is, for me, free public mm -hmm. good. But with great gifts come risks and challenges. Yes. Uh, so it's not for us to, you know, to say the internet or the social media is a bad thing. No, it's a massively effective so making, way for us to. Do you feel like you're making some headway? Yeah, because I think we're accessing people with better information than we ever have before. We've become much better at using those channels, defining and designing risk communication messages and tools, and getting out there. So there's two issues here. One is the issue of how do we get good information now. You know, we have to look at reality and say, okay, there's misinformation. So is our job to fight the misinformation by fighting those who put it out? Or is our job really to get better at putting out good information? So in other words, can we design and deliver risk communication in a more effective way and make ourselves more credible? Make ourselves the ones who are listened to by being really good at what we do, being frequent and honest and open and admitting the unknowns and keeping reputational management away from risk communication. And too many times, governments and others mix these two things up. And it's really, really important. They're not the same thing. They get a toxic engagement of these two can often mean confusion, confusion and not giving the messages to the population that they need. Right. Because that message comes tinged with perception of failure, perception of you're not, you know, you're not protecting the population. Well, let's lighten, let's soften that message. Because if we tell people we don't know, then it looks like we're incompetent. No. If you tell people we don't know, it means you're being honest. And that builds trust. The day of the know-it-all is gone, in that sense, right? And uh, so we have to get better, and I think we are, and I think many governments are getting better at that. But equally, when there is destructive, harmful misinformation, we have to find ways to counter that. And what we've been doing is not attacking the messengers. That's not fair, nor is it useful. What we've been doing is attacking the message finding those messages on the internet and immediately going out in those channels with the counter argument. <laughs> like a vaccine <laughs> in right. itself. Right. So, because this idea of demonizing those messengers, is, it's, it's not a police action, but the message itself is the And it plays thing. into their yeah. own narrative that you have some deep hidden agenda. No, and if they menu. believe in democracy of information, they should be just as happy that we're out there putting ours out, if that is the true belief. May I ask, given the interconnection, right? China, 17% of global economy, deeply integrated across almost every sector. The isolation, the travel bans, the isolation, the disruption of hmm. commercial trade and the like, it begins to create pain for all involved at a fairly quick, ra rapid mm -hmm. race. And it's somewhat detached from whether the virus is spreading or not, mm -hmm. right? As you said, 527 cases outside of China with only a small margin that are, that are generated outside uh, of China. Yet, what we see is accumulating economic impacts. Mm -hmm. And some of those brought out by the stark travel bans that have been imposed is that now going to become a dominant feature driving the international response? Can we afford 
these disruptions in this period of time mm -hmm. as against what the true risk may be, mm -hmm. even while it's very difficult to know what the true public health risk is, given all these unknowns that we've talked about. No, it's a very fine balance to strike. How much you want to tighten the screw on the virus, which obviously tightens the screw on the economy. Yeah. Loosening the screw introduces a release of economic pressure, but also potentially release of the virus. And you have to, this is a very important consideration. Again, we're trying to say here as WHO is when we say no travel or trade restrictions, it's not to say there's no risk of travel. It's to say those risks can be managed rather than taking a zero risk approach. Another good example of that is now when we're responding to outbreaks in the areas of conflict. Right. Some of our best responders can't be with us because a zero risk approach is taken. Right. So it's exactly what we were talking it's about. Most sidelines. Exactly the same thing. Right. Because there is no such thing as zero risk. And if you set zero risk as your bar, this is when you get these screws right. tightening, right? That's what's causing the damage. But in this coronavirus case, countries, the United States and others, other major econ advanced economies, ignore the advice, mm -hmm. the public health advice around mm -hmm. travel bans and disruptions uh, in trade that WHO and others, they ignored those and they put these things mm -hmm. in force. The economic impacts begin to accumulate mm -hmm. almost immediately mm -hmm. while the public health benefits are remain questionable mm -hmm. in this period. Mm -hmm. So are you, do you then come back into the conversation in some way? Well, we have and we do, and we just continue to reiterate the evidence of the science that drives our decision making and the fact that there is no zero risk. What we want is risk management. We're not the arbiter of yes or no. I mean, people are saying, should the Olympics go ahead? Should this go ahead? This is not WHO's job. Right. Our job is to offer risk management advice frameworks for decision-making that allow national and other authorities to make informed decisions regarding the health and welfare of the society matched against the travel and trade. I mean, the international health regulations is very clear. People forget it's got two parts. Uh, when we talk about the, the purpose of the IHR is to interrupt the international spread of the disease with minimal impact on travel and trade. It's got two pieces. Right. Because it recognizes in its central formulation that the restriction of the virus may involve measures that can impact travel and trade. So the difficulty for us in WHO is that those recommendations that are made by the Director General and under the IHR, those temporary recommendations, are not binding in international law. Correct. The only binding element in this is that countries must explain to us the rationale for those measures. So they have to tell us what the public health rationale is, and we can question that. That's a dialogue. We're not the arbiter to say that. Others have to have to look at that. But uh, it is important, and you can see the, in China, people are going back to work, and there's a big difference now between what's happening outside Hubei and inside Hubei. You'll see there's a return to work, there's a return to production going on in the other provinces. Economic production is, is recommencing. You heard the foreign minister of China saying China will recover. I think it's not the nature and scale of the restrictions that's concerning everyone, it's duration is actually higher in people's minds. How long will this last? And how long can the system tolerate that level of shutdown? And that's uh, coming into focus more than anything, I think. I think what's done is done. Everyone recognizes that people have put in place restrictions and it's happened. And now, the, I suppose the real question for is- For how long? For how long? And that's why we and need these unknown scales back. Yeah, because if we find out that this virus is, um, is not as transmissible 
and we have a chance to stop it and we can go after it and interrupt, then we can do that. We did it in SARS in 12 weeks. You know, it was done in terms of uh, the transmission chains. But if the virus is spreading at the community level, if the virus is efficient in its community transmission, then the thing we really need to know then is what is the actual case fatality in the population? Because people have said to me, oh, you know, it's only 2.4% or 2.3% case fatality. I said, you do remember that was the 1918 pandemic, you know? Right. So this formula of attack rate versus fatality. And it sounds so simple, but unless you know those two numbers, you can't predict where we're going with this thing. So I think, uh, you know, all countries need to now look at a situation where it is too damaging to global economic systems to lock down the world. And what we're going to have to accept in not locking down the world is a degree of residual risk that the virus can exploit that movement. And I think we have to be reasonable, and that's where governments, and it's not just in the health ministry, this has to be a high-level policy decision. Calculation, yeah. Calcul it's a calculation, exactly right. right. It's much better if that calculation is based on public health and science and not on speculation and politics, you know? And I think that's some of the criticism that's coming as well, is there some suspicion that some of these sanctions or some of these travel measures have are not purely uh, motivated by a concern for citizens. Right. And I think that's part of the frustration. To what extent is this a tit for tat? I was saying at the, at the town hall about our, our Russian colleagues who came to see me and talk about the smallpox heroes. And it was incredible the warmth they had towards their American counterparts. The, the, the nostalgia it was almost like the space program, a kind of friendly competition. I mean, the, the politicians fought, but they felt comradery. comradery right? Solidarity. You know. and, and to think that at the height of the Cold War, in the midst of the worst phase of the Cold War, we eradicated smallpox. Who'd have thunk? You know, you couldn't right. do it. So it is possible to put aside uh, ideologies and political tensions and do a job together. Thank you. I think you've given us an enormous amount to think about and, and that closing appeal to us to transcend our differences and see the common interest in moving ahead. Thank you so much, Mike, for all the time you've given us today and for all the great service that you've given to the, this cause and your role at WHO. Thank you. Thank you, Steve.